Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle, creator of the Teenage Personality Quiz. Head to TalkingToTeens.com for a free PDF explaining how your teenager thinks. We are here today with Lisa Heffernan. She is the co-founder of Grown and Flown, which is the number one community for parents of teens and young adults. It's a website that receives millions of page views every month, and it's an online community of parents with over 130,000 parents on Facebook. She and her co-founder, Mary Dell Harrington, have put together a book jam-packed with awesome advice from topics that they've found are interesting to parents in their parenting group and on their website. They have then gone and interviewed some of the top parenting experts in the world, and they've put everything together in this book, Grown and Flown. So really, really interested to talk to Lisa about parenting strategies specifically for those years when kids are getting towards the end of high school and getting ready to leave the nest or even when they're starting college. So can't wait to ask Lisa about all of that and more. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm really interested in kind of how this book came about because you guys like interview a number of really top experts in here on all different kinds of uh, uh, really important issues that parents are facing as kids are starting to hit those grown and flown years. So why did you decide to write this book on grown and flown? And then how did you kind of, how did you do it in this format? Well, about seven years ago, we started a website on raising teens, basically high school kids and college kids, kids from the ages of 15 to 25, because my co-founder, Maridale Harrington, and myself were in those years. We had, um, I believe we had 10th graders at the time, and we had older kids who had just gone to college. And we could find very little on the internet that spoke to parents in this demographic. We felt that we were facing some of the most challenging and rewarding, but certainly the most challenging years in parenting. And there was very little out there. So we threw up some of the stories about our lives and we asked some of our friends to write some of their experiences. And we started what you would call a blog. And then one day we pushed a button on Facebook and started a Facebook group. And the group grew and grew and grew. And we have about 135,000, 140,000 parents in there right now discussing all of the very complex issues that parents face every day um, getting through these years. You know, there's a lot of support when your kids are little. There's your pediatrician and there's your kids' teachers and there's your kids' coaches. And when your kids get older, there's not much support in community. You're kind of on your own. Yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah, well, and it's kind of frightening. (laughs) So we hope to provide some of that, both with the Facebook group and with the website. And for a long time, it was us and a few close friends 
putting the site together. But as we expanded over the years, we reached out to people who are experts in this field. And we made a lot of really, really amazing friends. We've published a lot of incredible authors. And at this point, we have over 500 writers on the site. So it's really no longer our personal blog, if you will. It's, it's a website with 500 contributors. And many, many of them are high school teachers, college professors, psychologists, physicians, people who know this age group from their professional point of view, and maybe their parents as well, but they're coming to us from their professional point of view. So along the way, a publisher reached out to us, Flatiron, who's part of Macmillan, and asked us if we would turn some of this content into a book. So we got together with some of the smartest people that we know in this field, um, asked them for um, insights. We did interviews. Um, We've got some amazing interviews with people like Francis Jensen, who's the head of neuroscience at Penn, talking about drinking and drugs and teenagers and the dangers of addiction, particularly in this age group, um, as well as some of the other dangers like driving and um, you know the other things we worry about as parents. And we put it all together over the course of a year and a half, and it was published this fall. And it's beautiful. Uh, it's like huge too. I mean, the thing is over 300 pages long and it's fun because it's not all just you guys. You bring in all these different experts and different writers and different voices and people who just kind of are sharing like experiences and personal stories that like back up kind of the points that you're making. And um, it's it's really a great guide to this time. And it's kind of a unique time of life that there's not a lot of stuff about. A lot of our research in our lab here was dealing with the transition into college, and we look at what forces cause kids to drink at problematic levels. And there's a lot of research showing that parents make a big, a big difference, and parents matter. So um, I think it's cool to see this book for parents and showing kind of how they can make uh, a positive difference. We tried to cite a lot of research um, so that parents would feel like they were getting the most up-to-date information. Um, and as you say, we asked a lot of writers, really, really wonderful writers, to, to tell some of their personal stories so you'd also feel like you were listening to that parent who was just a few years ahead of you and had experienced you know, something that you hadn't experienced yet. But one of my favorite pieces of research in the book, and I feel like it it speaks to us as parents and it's so compelling and we need to remember it, was about drinking. It was about the fact that freshmen drank less alcohol on days that they spoke to their parents, even if they never spoke about drinking. So they monitored a group mm. of freshmen over the course of their first semester. They monitored whether they drank and how much they drank. So they were looking both for whether they drank at all and about obviously the big danger with drinking, as we all know, with kids in colleges binge drinking. Um, and kids who spoke to their parents on those days actually drank less. So just being with them and continue to communicate with them and staying close with them conveys to them some of the values that we raise them with and reminds them, our voices remind them of what they've heard so many times in our homes. There's all kinds of stuff to talk about in this book. One thing is, you know, we're kind of this this generation where everyone's talking about helicopter parenting and how you need to not not do that. We don't want to be a helicopter parent. Uh, we don't want to overparent. We don't want to bulldoze things away from being in front of our kids. But then, of course, that is kind of a two-edged sword because you do want to stay connected to them and you do want to stay close to them and you do want to like be helping them. So 
something that I thought was really interesting that you guys talk about in this book is how to be kind of close to them, talk to them regularly, share dinners, group texts, but still kind of let them find their own way and solve their own problems. Yeah. You know, I feel like the helicopter parenting thing has really been overblown in the press, not in the sense that it's not a problem if you helicopter it is, but that I don't think it's quite as many people as we think it is. There's very little data on how many parents truly count as helicopter parents, but it's kind of messing with the rest of our heads because we're worried constantly about, you know, being too much in our kids' lives, overstepping. Parents are tortured by whether they should or shouldn't do something. We had a a parent write in one day, and this really stuck with me, right when the kids were going back to college, and ask if we thought if she cleaned the dorm room before her son moved in, so if she had a big wipe down because the kid was moving into a not completely clean dorm room in September, would, would that be helicopter parenting? No. If, if you go back every Wednesday and do it, yes. Uh, but if yeah, one yeah, day, yeah. on move-in day, you bring some Clorox wipes and you have a little wipe before your kid leaves... That is not helicopter parenting. Helicopter parenting is if you show up every week and do it. So it's really messed with parents' heads just about. It's also like mm. made us forget that these are loving acts. These are caring acts. These are the things that we want to show our kids. You want to do things for your kids because you want to show them that they will then do for their partners and for their children and for their friends. And this is the way we show care and love for other people. So it has messed with our heads a little bit. I think the important thing to remember is when you try, there's a huge amount of research about this. Um, and we read a lot of it. Some of it's in the book. Some of it we've been speaking about when we've gone all over the country speaking. When you try and control your kid's life, when you don't give them autonomy, when you don't trust them, when you don't value their judgment, that's when you're helicopter parenting. When you talk with them about their problems, when you're available for them to, you know, so that they can have, a, you know, an ear to listen to them, when you do small things for them, if you get up early and make breakfast for them when you know they've been up studying till midnight, your high schooler, that's not being helicopter parent. Mm. That's just being a really nice person. Yeah, it's caring. <laughs> yeah. So we have, to, we have to really separate those two things. Helicopter parenting is saying, I don't trust you. I don't trust your judgment. I don't trust you to be able to do this. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to talk to your teacher for you. I'm going to, I'm going to talk to your doctor for you. I'm going to run in and talk to your coach. Helicopter parenting says, I don't trust you. I'm going to do it for you. You'd mess it up if you did it by yourself. Yeah. I think we have to be careful with that one because it's, it's, yeah. kind of, it's kind of affecting the rest of us. Yeah, right. It makes you feel like you every, question everything or second guess everything because, you know, it's like the thing we're not supposed to do. But then, uh, yeah, I, I wonder if that pushes us too far in the other direction. Exactly. And it's a balance. And every day we're faced with it. And some days we'll get it wrong and hopefully more days we'll get it right. So one of the areas where that balance is difficult to walk for sure is in the use of tracking software and the ability to track exactly where our kids are at all times. Is this something that people are talking about a lot in your Facebook group or is it like, uh, just, is this not, not really a big issue with people today or what? The issue of tracking teens is a huge and very, very confounding issue. Parents come down strong on both sides of this. It's a very personal decision. One, we talk about some of the important things to think about. 
one of the difficulties with it is that kids can begin to feel that we can sort of help them and save them from themselves, that, that because we're tracking them, we're replacing our judgment with their judgment. And that's where the really negative part of it comes in. As teenagers get older and older, they need to be able to rely on their own judgment more and more and their own safety. Kids now become in charge of their own safety. And um, they shouldn't be thinking that the tracking is going to, to replace that, replace their good judgment, their re- replace their safe driving, replace all of the ways in which they need to look after themselves. Um, one of the biggest surprises to us around this issue of tracking was how many families like tracking each other and how many kids were also tracking their parents and wanted to be able to track their parents. This was something we didn't see. We've had a lot of uh, conversations in the group about this, and we've had a lot of conversations with parents about this. So it's a very personal decision in families, but parents need to think through what it means if the kids know that they're being tracked. We talked just briefly about alcohol, but part of it is what you need to know, I think, as a parent is just kind of the facts about how alcohol affects the teenage brain so that you can have a conversation with them about those. So what's the basics, I guess, that you need to know as a parent to be armed with in order to have an alcohol talk with your teenager? We interviewed Frances Jensen, as I mentioned earlier. She's University of Pennsylvania physician around neuroscience, and she wrote a wonderful book that I can't recommend highly enough called The Teenage Brain. And in it, she talks about the ways that alcohol affects the teenage brain differently than an adult brain. And I won't go into the science of it now um, because I'm afraid I'll get it wrong. We were very careful with it and quoted her very carefully in in the book. But one of the things she talks about that's super important is that addiction and alcoholism are learned behaviors. So any form of addiction is repetitive behavior that the brain, you know, she talks about it being like learning a sports skill. You do something over and over again, and then your brain becomes habituated to it. And kids are much better at learning than we are. Teenagers' brain power is much better than ours. Their brains are more flexible and they learn more easily, which means also they're in danger of addiction more readily than we are. So she talks about some of the very, very real dangers, scientific real dangers that we now know because we can look at kids' brains in a way that we couldn't before. We have the medical equipment to do so. And she feels, and she's the mother of two young adults, she feels that one of the most compelling arguments we can make to kids about not drinking or at the very least not binge drinking, which is so dangerous, is to explain the science to them, to tell them what this, what alcohol, the way it poisons their brains, how it's more impactful on their young brains than it is on an adult brain and the risks that they're taking that may impact them for the rest of their lives. So, you know, she, she talks about teaching them and talking to them like the young adults that they're going to be. And reasoning with them, rather than sort of standing on your soapbox and saying, don't drink, don't drink, it's bad for you, don't do it. That's not that compelling to a lot of young Right. So um, she she gives us the science, she gives us the reasons, she gives us really compelling ways that we can talk to our kids that honors their intelligence and honors their growing maturity and gives them real reasons to stay away from alcohol or at least to stay away from it in any large quantity. It's cool thinking about it being a good thing that, you know, teenagers are can learn so much more and their brain is so much more adaptable and pliable. But then, you know, of course, there's also 
with with that uh, great power comes some great responsibilities or something like that. And it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? I think talking about that and making them aware of that. Because also, and you, I think you point this out in here, actually. Yeah, it can sound kind of condescending a little bit. Like, there exactly. is this research about, you know, the teenage brains. But when you start talking to your teenager about it and saying, well, your brain isn't fully developed yet. And so it's best not for you to do certain things uh, until your brain, like, just becomes a little more developed. Um, it kind of can sound like you're just talking down to them a little bit as much as you want it to turn out to be like a positive conversation where you're talking about uh, their brain it can actually even not go that well so I like this framing because it feels positive you know Um, and it's not just saying like well because your brain your brain isn't ready for drinking so don't drink you know it's saying well actually like you know it's really good uh, that the teenage brain is so adaptable and you know um, is it means you can learn so much new skills and change who you want to be and all of that and this is just kind of a, one of those consequences that you have to watch out for with that too. Yeah, you know, she instead of exactly instead of talking down to them um, and and giving them that argument, she actually suggests you talk to them like an adult, showing them that you have that respect for them. That they will understand the complexity of this, and that they will understand the damage and care enough about their life going forward um, to know that this is something they need to think hard about. So it's a different approach than I've seen many people suggest, and I think it's a very powerful one. How should parents handle it when you have a teenager who gets their heart broken? It's the hardest thing. (laughs) It's one of the most common things parents come to us about um, because it's excruciating. It it Mm. actually, honestly, I think for parents, it's almost harder to watch your child go through this than it was to go through it yourself. Um, We have a couple of great pieces in the book um, and one particularly talks about having been in college, having been broken up by the boyfriend who she thought was it. She thought this was the young man that she'd spend the rest of her life with and he dumped her. And that her father took it seriously. And her father said, do you need me to come to school and pick you up? Do you need to come home for a couple of days? And she said, no, I don't. And she said, you know, these 30 years later, the fact that he offered that, the fact that he cared so much. Mm. Um, so, So the number one thing is just to tell them that you completely understand and are there for them in their in their moment of pain to try not to brush it off. Sometimes our inclination is to lessen something and say, there'll be other people, you'll have other relationships. You know, this wasn't perfect anyway. That's not helpful. What's helpful is to say, I see your pain. I understand your pain. I am here to help with your pain. Um, so to be that ear, Lisa Demore, who's a psychologist who we have a lot of admiration for, and we quote uh, a number of times in the book, talks about being available to be the place where your kid dumps their emotional trash, a place where they can go and just kind of throw the worst of it out there. And this is one of the worst moments for for young adults and to be there. And that that itself is sometimes everything that they need. But but other things, you know, don't ever badmouth the previous boyfriend or girlfriend. Teenagers are very Mm. fickle beings. (laughs) They may be back together in a week. You will rue the day that you ever said anything bad about them try and just, you know, help them in small ways that cheer them up. Sometimes it's just a care package to college. Sometimes it's a special treat for a high schooler, just something that acknowledges that you see what they're going through. And then, you know, 
like everything else, it doesn't hurt sometimes to bring our own experience into the situation. Maybe they want to hear it, maybe they don't, but you can talk to them about, you know, I had my heart broken and I know how this feels. And it takes a while. So bring, you know, most of us have been in that situation. We've had our hearts broken at various times by people. Um, and we can just bring some of our own experience into it. Um, one of the things that a lot of psychologists tell us is that teenagers think that our lives are perfect and that we handled everything. We have jobs, we have lives, we, you know, we have the trappings of adulthood and somehow it's perfect. Um, mm. So it's very important to tell them of those imperfections, of those bad moments, of those low moments in our lives so that they know that it's just part of a journey. We are here with Lisa Heffernan talking about tips from her book, Grown and Flown. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. You know, do well and your parents are out of this. You know, your parents will step back <laughs> and pay no attention. What could be more motivating than getting your parents out of your hair? Every time you tell a parent who's experiencing this that there's actually a name for it, you just see the <laughs> look of relief on their faces. You know, it's, it's very easy to fall in love with somebody who loves your kid. You know, your child has brought home this romantic partner who makes them so happy and, and looks on them so, you know, with such admiration, not to feel such happiness and such closeness to that person. But we want to be really careful not to create any pressures in that relationship. So not to make it hard for them to break up because, oh, so-and-so has gotten so close to my parents and I don't really think our relationship's working, but now it's difficult to extricate myself. Mm. So we, we have to watch that fine line. The best wisdom I can give parents around this is what people tell us is take your cues from your kids. Don't get ahead of your kids. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.